If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15. That's where we're going to be tonight, Romans chapter 15. I'm going to do my very best tonight to try to uh, go through these two chapters, if we can. If not, we'll finish it when we uh, have another opportunity to be together. But uh, we are trying to finish up this study as we have looked about uh, this theme, not being ashamed. And uh, really, it's been uh, an opportunity for us to spend some time in the same text that our children are studying for Lads to Leaders. And these last few weeks, uh, we've kind of sped through uh, God's view of the differences between Israel and the church. And then, of course, that we all have certain talents and qualities we ought to be using for the edification of the church. And so tonight, uh, Paul is going to try to summarize uh, some of his thoughts He'll highlight a couple of uh, just some things that he's talked about, and then he will begin to talk about his future plans. He's going to talk about his trip to Rome. He's going to talk about people that he loves and that he can't wait to see. Uh, and he's going to also talk to some of these brethren that he's never met before and how he longs to be able to be with them as well. So let's begin in chapter 15. And I think probably to start, let's read through verses, uh, first through, through verse 13. Uh, Romans chapter 15, 1 through 13. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves, but each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Holy Scriptures might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason, I'll confess you to among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall have hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of great verses here. I've got several of them highlighted, but I love that verse 13 that reminds us that God is a God of hope. And his goal is to fill us with joy and peace. Not just joy and peace, he says, all 
joy and peace. In other words, your cup is overflowing. And then he says, also, I do this so that you can abound in hope, that that hope is provided to you through the joy and peace that God has given. But even back up in verse 5, he talks about God being a God of patience, that he can grant us uh, many blessings and many provisions that we would not have otherwise. And so in this section, remember, he's just finished talking about the danger of causing people to stumble. We talked about that Wednesday night. He has talked about the danger of pushing your own opinion on someone in, in such a way that it causes them to leave the church. And he says, you don't do that. He says three times in that chapter, you know, don't judge each other. Don't judge each other. He said that a dozen times in this book alone is that it's not our place to criticize someone for their personal conviction. Now, if it's biblical, the Bible plainly teaches us what doctrine is. We understand the basic tenets of Scripture, but there are certain opinions that we might get caught up on, and, and we shouldn't try to force our views, our opinions on someone else. And he's dealt with that already previously. But now here he says, if you're strong, you want to be able to handle people who are weak. Uh, people who say that they have a superior view, a superior viewpoint, or may think that they have some kind of you know, biblical framework where there is none. Maybe it's a gray area. Uh, he says you ought to, if you're strong enough, know how to deal with weak people. You don't force them as you wouldn't force a child, uh, even though we all know how good a nice steak dinner would be. You can't force an infant to eat it. Uh, it would choke them. And he says that's what's going to happen. It's interesting that the same thought here of meat and milk that Paul has taught here and has taught in other places like in Hebrews that uh, Jesus will use in uh, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, the idea of being choked out by the word. Because there are some who cannot handle any deeper conversation. So he says, just be careful that you learn how to deal with weak people and bear each other's burdens, which is part of what he talks to the Galatians about, who also had a problem with, with arrogance. And so he says, don't put a stumbling block in people's way. Pursue love, pursue peace. And now he's going to say, pursue joy. And it's our goal to try to glorify God in whatever way that we can. So he says, in order to do that, you need to be considerate. You don't judge people. You don't criticize people. You don't become a stumbling block for people. But you learn how to handle difficult situations. Uh, many times the problems that we face are because we have an issue with uh, communication. We, we have a, a, a poor, we do a poor job sometimes of communicating a thought. Uh, and one way that we do that is by saying something is biblical without giving a biblical reference. And that's something that I think we, we all need to think about is when we have to defend something from a biblical point of view, we need to have scripture to go along with it. It's not enough to say, well, the Bible says, well, where in the Bible does it say? Here's how Paul does it. Paul footnotes here three scriptures from the Old Testament to prove his point that he's made for the last four or five chapters. That Gentiles have just as much an opportunity to praise God, to worship God, and to be saved as a part of the New Testament church. So he gives book, chapter, and verse. So the brethren who are reading it know that he's not offering his opinion. He's actually giving scripture as to why this is the case. Um, I'm very nervous sometimes when I go to lectureships and hear people speak and I, I hear them tell stories and they win the crowd and they're so great to listen to and they're funny and they, they connect on all these levels, but there's no Bible used. And we see that on television sometimes with these guys. They'll get up and they'll tell great stories and they smile and tell you God wants to give you everything you ever wanted, but there's no scripture involved. And so Paul is showing us, not by teaching us, but also showing us his scripture use. That these are the Bible verses you need to know. Now, he's referenced 
this previously, but he's also giving, he's doubling down. This is his conclusion. Uh, as old preachers used to say, you get up and you tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. And if you do those three things, people will respect you. They'll hear what you're going to say, they'll listen to what you say, and then you reinforce it as you close out the message. And he's going to do this again later in verse 21. But he's giving them Bible verses to help them footnote what he's already talked about. I love to read footnotes in, in books because sometimes people will make a comment and they don't give a reference to it. I want to know where this reference is. Where have you heard this? Where have you seen this? Um, most of us probably are not that enthralled with uh, academia. You know, we don't just go and start looking up references and books and case studies and etc. We have to trust that the people that are talking to us know what they're talking about. But if you've lived on this earth long enough, you know people have said things in public, on the radio, on television, on the internet, in the paper, that they did not properly reference those things. They're just going on what they've been told before. So Paul's giving us a good insight. What I'm, what I'm telling you, you need to respect, you need to listen to, but also, not only am I confirming this by the Holy Spirit who's in me, but I'm going to give you a book, chapter, and verse from the Old Testament as well. <clears throat> and so he does that three or four times here. Now let's go to verse 14. It says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points, as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be able to minister, uh, be a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering to the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Jesus Christ the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word or deed to make Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard, they shall understand. So now Paul moves into this section where he's going to talk about the people to whom he wants to write to and to convict with this message. I love how he also says here, uh, when he, we talk about his, his, his views and his thoughts, that he is doing this as a minister of the gospel. So he's reinforced, he's, done, he's got the power of the Holy Spirit, but his teaching is to minister to people. Uh, it's not always the will of someone who is speaking, preaching, teaching, whatever, to simply convict. That's a part of the message. We have to convict people when they're in the wrong. But he says, I am simply trying to minister to you. I'm trying to share something that's going to build you up or encourage you. And that ought to be the case. That one of the best things we can do as a child of God is recognize that people that are a part of the kingdom are unlike me. Uh, we, we have to think about people that speak a different language and people who have worshipped a different God than we have. And the goal is to bring everybody into the family of God. We ought to have people from all kinds of backgrounds in the church. It should help encourage us to say, look what God is doing among the people of this nation or that nation. Look at the people who are coming to the faith. And that ought to be a message of encouragement. Unfortunately, there were people in the church in that day that would rather have no church than to have a church full of Gentiles. 
They would just simply rather not come together. They didn't want to eat with them. They didn't want to sing with them. They didn't want to worship with them. And they certainly didn't want to be able to fellowship with them. And so Paul's saying this is for your own edification. And he says Jesus did these things not to please himself back in verse 3. And so now he's saying I did this not to please myself either. This was uh, something that I did to benefit the entire kingdom. That's his, his reasons for writing. And he shows this great confidence in this. And then there in verses 17 through 21... He tells them how his ministry is proof of Christ working in him, how he had led many Gentiles to Jesus and planned to do so on other uh, in other lands. And I, I think I appreciate the fact that he says he's going to new places that might also, that, you know, when you start thinking about what is Paul saying, saying, I want to I don't want to build on another man's foundation because Paul had found it difficult to go into communities where the gospel had already been preached by somebody because people were attracted to the personality, the person that was preaching. And we know this from reading 1 Corinthians. There were some brethren that had already made contact with people in Corinth. Now, he, he starts the work, or he seems to have started the work, because he talks about you know, Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. He had done his best to evangelize that community. But upon hearing from... Uh, from his sister, Sister Chloe, that they had done things that were wrong, he says, well, I'm glad I didn't baptize a lot of people in this church. And he talks about how some of them had followed Paul, some had followed Apollos, some had followed Peter and Cephas, and others who said were just of Christ. And so Paul says, my goal is to go to new places, new territories, where other people haven't been. And this is just, again, a way that he's sharing that I have the power of the Holy Spirit. People ought to be able to hear me and know what truth is. And he didn't want to build on a foundation of someone else's uh, for fear that, that he would come back and things would change. Or that he would get there and not be received. Uh, and this is just one of those things preachers think about from time to time. When you go somewhere, are they going to receive my message? Are they going to, you know, are they going to be able to uh, take it and use it? Are they going to be, are they going to be more focused on one than another? It's one reason why in a lot of foreign countries, uh, missionaries do not baptize people while they're there. They let, they let the local missionary baptize people because they'll say, oh, I was baptized by the American. And so therefore you're somehow, uh, your, their faith supersedes yours. And so Paul says, I want to go some new lands. I want to be in some new territories and I really want to reach these Gentiles uh, with the cause of Christ. And then he says in verse 19, boy, I wish we had time to go through these thoughts because there are three different, we talk about signs on Sunday morning, but there are signs, there are wonders, and there are miracles, and those aren't always in the same category. We could, we could talk about that at another time, but there are different ways that God worked through men. And so Paul is saying what he's doing is in mighty signs and wonders. He's displaying the power of God. And so he has done some miracles. Um, Paul doesn't make his mission uh, a miraculous mission. He's about preaching. He sees the future. A lot of people in those days in the church would come for the show. They'd come because they wanted to see people speak in tongues. They wanted to see the dead raised. That's what they were looking for. Because Jews needed that kind of convincing. But Paul is now saying he's moving on from those mighty works to preach the gospel to cultures that did not need miracles. Uh, it is confirmed in Scripture that the Jews sought after those kinds of things. They needed miracles and signs and wonders. But the Gentiles sought after wisdom. The Gentiles are the ones who, uh, they might not go to a synagogue to learn about God, but they will go stand on the street corner and listen to someone who speaks Greek philosophy. 
And there were guys that drove, dressed up in their robes, and they went and stood uh, in street corners or stood, stood near the libraries, and they began to share philosophical messages, asking questions to see if they could get answers, really deep thinkers. And so that's who the Gentiles were. And Paul brings his own wisdom of philosophy to the table. Uh, he is a philosopher at heart. We know that because he quotes a lot of philosophers in his books. And so he's saying, I'm going to go out and reach these new people by meeting them where they are when it comes to what knowledge they were seeking. And then he's going to teach them that they can follow Jesus. In fact, he does this at the uh, uh, Mars Hill in, in Acts 17 where he comes and he says, you know, I see all these gods that you have. I want to talk about the one that's to the tomb of the unknown God. I want to talk about that one. And uh, he does a fantastic job of using something from their culture to teach the truth. Now, keep reading with me till the end of the chapter. Uh, it says, for this reason, verse 22, I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on the way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Achaia to uh, make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of the spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea, those who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. And now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now we see here he's using this idea of peace and giving us a little bit about the nature of God. He's already referred to him in this chapter as a <clears throat> backing up a God of patience in verse 5 and then a God of hope in verse 13. He talks about him being a God of, of peace in verse 33. But he's talking about God's nature and identifying the fact that these are the things that God is uh, fully capable of. And these are things also that are uh, traits, character traits or fruit of the church. I also want to make note of, of, of just a couple things real briefly. He talks about his missionary journey. He talks about his works. But he also identifies that those that he's speaking to in Gentile communities and those in Jewish communities are actually helping one another. And he does this in some of his other writings. He takes donations from Gentile people and gives it to Jews who need help. And likewise, he takes Jewish donations and he goes and he helps Gentiles that needed assistance. And so he's showing here in this text the way that they work together. Now, there are some people who probably, if they knew the cause they were uh, contributing to, they might have to think about it. Because there were people that had an issue with, especially Jews, had issues with Gentiles. And if it was a Gentile work, they didn't want to support it. They didn't want to do it. And so now he's saying here to the Jews, Gentiles are helping. To the Gentiles, Jews are helping. And that they're simply working together. And he, he says... That's a benefit. Uh, but the other thing is, he says, I need your prayers. I don't just need your contributions financially. I need your, your prayers to get to the, to the next destination. Now, we know that his plans have to be revised. 
because he ends up in a Roman prison cell in Acts 28. Uh, tradition tells us that uh, upon his release from that prison cell, he probably went to Spain. He continued some missionary activity and then was rearrested, taken to Rome where he would be put to death. Or probably around about the same time that Peter was rounded up and put to death as well. But he, he does his best to get to Rome when he can. So we see his vision of reaching the Roman, uh, the, to the city of Rome. He wants to reach the Roman people. He wants to be able to talk to people that uh, are, um, you know, probably the most culturally literate of anybody else in his day. And this is basically like going to the largest city uh, in the country. And he sees himself as a martyr for the cause of Christ, even though he hadn't died yet. He says, I've got to go there. But this is one of the things that, that Paul does several times in the book of Acts. In fact, almost we get frustrated because he gets in trouble for something that he doesn't necessarily need to be in prison for. And rather than just taking his beating and walking away, he will frequently identify that he is a Roman citizen. In fact, he has a conversation with a, 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 a Roman soldier. And the Roman soldier says, how did you get your uh, citizenship? I bought mine. Paul says, uh -uh, I was born a Roman citizen, which means you almost have a higher standard. So Paul would use his Roman citizenship to gain access to certain people and eventually to the higher courts. For instance, today, we don't see this in our country, but you can imagine if you had some kind of a card that provided you an opportunity to skip local government and go straight to the Supreme Court. Now I want the highest court of the land to hear me out. And they literally would give that person in Rome or a Roman citizen access to the Roman court in Rome. They had a, uh, an audience with the Caesar. And so uh, it wasn't just that it was some court system, but ultimately Caesar had to sign off on whether or not you were rewarded or punished if you were seen guilty or not guilty. And Paul says, that's what I want, because he knows he's not had a lot of success. You know, we talk about uh, in Acts, he goes before uh, Festus, he goes before Agrippa. Uh, he has an audience of Herod. And so in, in those instances, it's not always good. Sometimes he's thrown in jail for a few years. But he's working up his courage and he's learning from those courtroom scenes to prepare him for that great audience he'll have later with the highest court of the land. And with, at that time, the most powerful man in the world. And so Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's using that to his advantage. So all of these things show us Paul has a vision, and that is he wants to get to Rome. He wants to ultimately convert some in, Roman's house, or in the Roman Caesar's household, which he probably does. Uh, we can see that here in just a little bit. So let's look at chapter 16. I'm going to do my best to get through here in about 15 minutes, so we'll have some questions. In chapter 16, uh, Paul continues his greeting here uh, where he, he, he concludes his message and, and saying he's got some people on his prayer list. I was uh, listening, I think it was Ben Hayes, when I was uh, preaching in North Alabama, he was our youth minister, and he got up and talked about Paul's thank you list and his prayer list. And I said, that's a pretty neat way to look at it, but that's kind of what he's doing here. So he says in verse 16, chapter 1, chapter 16, verse 1, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, who's a servant in the church in Concretia, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and to myself also. This particular sister in Christ is called a servant. Now, I know that there's probably a lot of time we can spend on this, but, but we're just going to focus on it real quick. Just give me a couple of minutes. There is a confusion sometimes on this verse. 
It's only confusing because men choose to confuse it. But here he, she is called a servant. There is one translation I'm aware of, maybe another, but only one that I know of, that translates this as a deaconess. And you say, deaconess, what in the world is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, there, are, there were churches by the second century and into the third century that began to <laughs> depart from the plan that God had in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Titus chapter 1. Paul gives the men of the church, male leaders in the church, specific, specific qualities that they had to follow in order to be a shepherd or to be a deacon. Uh, we see this consistently through the book of Acts. We also see it in some of Paul's letters. You know, we look at Philippians, and we can see how he talks about deacons and elders. Uh, and nowhere in Scripture is it ever spoken of that there were deaconesses. There's not a single passage. In fact, we would see that almost as a transliteration, much like we see baptism and words like that, that we've taken uh, the, the Greek word and tried to make it a new English word. Um, but this is basically a play on the word servant. And a female servant could just simply be a female servant. Servants were male and servants were female. But it is evident from what we see in Paul's writings in 1, Corinthians th 1 Timothy 3 that deacons were male. Uh, and elders were male. Nowhere in the scripture do we see a female. But we do know by the late 2nd century and early 3rd century, churches began to title ladies in the church as deaconesses. This would have been completely foreign to uh, the New Testament times. That they, didn't, they didn't do this. They didn't call a woman a deaconess. She's simply a servant. And it's not unlike many of the times Paul talks about other ladies in the church. He calls them servants of God. Uh, we've got uh, Lydia is a great example in chapter 16 of Acts. But nowhere, nowhere does it say deaconess. So therefore, I would argue that the idea of having a title for such a lady in the church is not only unbiblical, it's not biblical, not scriptural, but also we can prove that it wasn't even a term they used. That was not something they were familiar with. There was no position and no term as such in the New Testament church. It was, it would be a few centuries later that this becomes a practice. And also by that time, by the way, they started working on other changes to the church that were also not biblical. And you can talk about the, uh, the idea of being completely celibate. You can talk about uh, sprinkling as a part of baptism for children. Those things start uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th century, the addition of instruments, things like that. None of that was present in the early church. But somebody thought they'd be smart and put this term in here so that we might think that there was a position, but there was none. If that, that helps you hopefully see it. But basically, she's a minister. She's a spiritual servant. It is pretty cool, though, that of all the people that carry the letters of Paul, they're all men. This is the only time Paul hands his letter to a woman. Now, I would ask you to let's put our thinking hats on. Why? Forget about the deaconess thing. That's not a role. It's not a title. Why does he give this woman his letter? Well, remember that he is sending this letter where? To Rome. This is the most uh, well-traveled city, but also there are people there that didn't like Jews and Christians. In fact, many of them were cast out of Rome. We talked about that in our series on uh, Corinthians and talking about Aquila and Priscilla and other Jewish background people and Christians that were kicked out of Rome because of persecution. And so if you're trying to get a letter in to Christians in Rome, you would need to do it secretly. Nobody would think to check a woman's handbag for a letter. 
So this is probably the reason why he sent her instead of sending Timothy or Silas. They're high-profile people. Everybody at that time who knew anything about Judaism knew about Christianity. And if they knew about Christianity, they knew about the Apostle Paul, the most famous Jewish convert the world's ever seen. And so they were always looking out for his followers. They were looking for Dr. Luke. They were looking for Timothy and Silas and even John Mark later. So it would make sense that Paul would try to give it to someone who could slip the letter in and get it to Christians uh, unscathed. And that's the reason why I believe she is highlighted at the first part of the chapter. He says, I want you to notice that this sister has gone through a lot to get this letter to you, and you need to respect her for it. Uh, a little more insight is gained on these people because it says in chapter uh, 16, verse 3, that Priscilla and Aquila were also present, or at least traveling back and forth to meet the brethren. He says, they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who, verse 4, risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Apennatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. In other words, he's one of the first Christians in that part of the world. Greet Mary, verse 6, who labored much for us. Greet, verse 7, Adronicus and Junia, my countrymen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who were also were in Christ before me. He says, These, this is another brother and sister, another family that had taken him in and loved him in his early years of conversion. It says in verse 8, Greet uh, Amphilus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Statius, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asencretus and Phlegion and Hermes, Petrobus and Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philogius and Julia, uh, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, if you didn't like the way I went through those names, you get it next time. Okay. Uh, we see several people, Paul says, I want you to talk to, I want you to greet, I want you to honor. Uh, shows us that he realizes that if he does make it to Rome, he's not going to be able to see all these people. He knows the persecution against Christians is so strong that they may not live until he gets there. He identifies some of these people as people he worked with, that he worked alongside of, some of them even in prison cells that he had been imprisoned with, and now they are there in this particular city. And I want you to notice, this is very important, if you're summarizing all these characters, which are from different places in the world, and you're talking about people in Achaia, and you're talking about people in Jerusalem, and you're talking about people in Rome, and Galatia, and all these regions, what did Paul see as a collective name of the brethren? Well, it says here in verse 16 that the churches of Christ salute you or greet you. Now, we, we hold very strongly to that because many times in the New Testament there are terms that are used, some terms of endearment and some uh, terms that are used in the grouping of brethren meeting in one place. They're called disciples. Uh, they're called Christians. 
They're called followers. And then there are terms that are used of the church. Like you may say church of the firstborn or church of God. But when Paul summarizes all these congregations of the Lord's people, this is, again, we're talking first century. He said, I see all of these brethren and all of these congregations as the churches of Christ. And that's one of the main reasons why it is a, uh, a hallmark of our faith to be able to call ourselves the churches of Christ. That's what, that's what God had intended. We are the church of the Lord, church of Christ. And so he does this by basically summarizing all these people and people all over the world. When I go to a new community, maybe you do this too, I'm going to visit somewhere, uh, I make sure I find a church of Christ in that community. Uh, many of us are kind of spoiled to online uh, worship. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you're traveling and you have your family together, and you have communion with you, and you want to have a time of worship, and you want to watch the service here, there's nothing wrong with that, not at all. But there's something special about being able to visit a brethren somewhere else. And I, I guess this is probably something I learned from my grandpa. He traveled a lot. And there were places we would go in the middle of Iowa, you know, in the middle of Nebraska, or in Texas somewhere. And he would come in and they'd go, oh, Jim, Brother Green, good to see you. And they'd shake his hand, talk to him. Because he had visited there many times before. And so we would make it very, uh, a very important priority that before we got somewhere, we knew where the church was. We knew what they stood for. This is before the Internet, by the way. So you had to get where the saints meet and call up the number in it. You know, and say, hey, y'all remember when the saints, am I, I'm dating myself now. Uh, we would go look at this book. We'd find a number. We'd call, say, hey, tell us about your congregation. You know, do y'all take communion? You know, do you have a choir? You know. We go through all the list of things. You take communion on the first day of the week. Uh, you practice, practice baptism. What about leadership? How many women leaders? You know, we try to figure out all these details to see if they were like us. But many churches of Christ have those same similarities. And you know what's really fascinating is unlike many religious groups, different denominations, they have a headquarters where they meet. They have a certain doctrine that is published every year. They have quarterlies that they go through, uh, passed down from the head to the feet. And I mean that. And so they'll have to preach and teach certain things, certain doctrines. If you stray in any way from that standard, you are uh, you're basically uh, an outcast. I had a professor in college. This was at a seminary where I was taking classes. And uh, he was, uh, I'll go ahead and say, he was a Baptist preacher, very famous Baptist preacher, well-read, well-written, uh, had been a professor in colleges for his entire life, a great man. And at his church, they had been studying through the book of Acts, and he suggested to the elders, they had elders, um, that he was going to resign as a pastor. He did not feel like he should fit that quality mold. And he said, the elders are the pastors. And uh, then they decided that they were going to start taking communion on the first day of every week, as they did in Acts 20 and verse 7. And as soon as he made those uh, statements public, and they were online, he was contacted by the Southern Baptist Association, who said, if you do these things... We will pull your funding. We will not allow you to have retirement anymore. We will not allow you to enjoy all the benefits of being a part of our fellowship. And he said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, you'll be ostracized uh, from the Baptist community. We hope that you take your name off your sign because you're no longer an SBC. And so they prayed about it and talked about it and decided that they were fine to break free. They also got a call saying, if you ever have a tornado in your area or any kind of a, a storm or a flood, our funds, like, you know, we have different relief funds. Our fund will not help you because you are no longer our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were willing, that church was willing to take the lump. They said, we, we're fine with that. 
We will not allow that to be something that influences us. And so there are other churches in the area write letters begging him, please don't do this. You know, stay within our fellowship. And he's like, I'm not trying to break fellowship. Y'all are trying to make, break fellowship. But this congregation decided that they were going to teach and preach what they saw in Scripture. And so large church in Illinois no longer was associated with that movement. And so they dropped their name off the sign. They were just called the church. And so we see this frequently, that people uh, butt heads with people of uh, religious movements. And they say, I know that we've taught this before, but I just can't teach it anymore. And they will then run away from it. They'll say, okay, well, we don't want anything to do with you. And so there has to be this conflict that comes. Am I going to follow scripture or am I going to follow what people tell me to follow? And I'm, I, we're very blessed in the Church of Christ and that we don't need to have headquarters. We don't need to have any president uh, of any organization or association. There's no need for me to check in yearly. Uh, you know, I don't get a retirement check from the Churches of Christ, Inc. You know, I don't, I don't get any particular benefits from... Uh, being a, a part of a massive organization. Nobody at any headquarters in Nashville or Florence, Alabama or Dallas, Texas sends me creed that I must teach on the first day of every week. I am permitted to preach and teach the word of God. Now I meet with our shepherds, our elders, and we discuss about what needs to be taught, what needs to be preached from the pulpit. And, but we don't need to have anything handed down to us by any organization. We're all autonomous. This congregation is different than the congregation in Robertsdale or, or Gulf Shores or Eastern Shore or in Spanish Fort. We're all different. We're led by a group of elders, shepherds, and that's all we need is men who believe the Bible, stand up for it, meet the qualifications, and that we open our Bible and say, we just want to teach this. And to be quite honest, I am, I'm so grateful. I couldn't do it. I would have a hard time staying up to date on the, you know, I can't even keep track of what TV programs are on what channels at what time, right? How am I going to keep track with new doctrines that are inserted into our curriculum every single year? It doesn't make any sense. And so we are autonomous. But he says, the churches of Christ, that is, if you're going to call us all something collectively, we're all brethren. We're part of the church of Christ. And so he uses that. And he also says to greet one another. We should be in fellowship and encourage people if they're teaching what is right. And then finally... He says, now I urge you, verse 17, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace, there's that thought again will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Notice he's done that twice now. I think probably in these days, ink and, and paper was very expensive. So he summarizes, he concludes, and then he goes, oh, let's write one more thing. And so he writes here, beginning verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sospiter, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. That means he's the one who helped Paul with pinning it, because his eyesight apparently was failing him at this age. Gaius, my host, and the host of the world whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Oh, sounds like he's done, right? Nope, keep going. So there's another addendum, another thought he has that adds to the paper before he folds it up and mails it. Now to him, verse 25, who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest 
and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, for to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So he adds this little benediction at the end, kind of like a PS or a closing prayer. And he identifies that, that the glory belongs to God and to God alone. Now, he also says here that this message was to go to all nations. So the word uh, that had been you know, shared with Rome, they shared this letter with others, which is why it's been preserved and put into our Bible. Many letters Paul wrote. This is one of his greatest works. I don't know if I said this when we started Romans, but... Uh, I, have, I, I was talking to one of my boys uh, who was in college at the time, and he said, did you know that Paul's books are put in order of size and not time or alphabetical order? I said, yes, I did. And he's like, you never told me that. And I said, well, I didn't know I needed to. So I'm telling you that Paul's letters are put in the order of size. Romans is his longest letter. That's why it's immediately after the book of Acts. And first and second Corinthians are long. They go next and then so forth. So his letters go from 16 chapter Romans to itty bitty Philemon at the very end. So they're in order of size. Um, but it's a great book. A wonderful book. A lot of great information here. Uh, Casey, would you like to run the microphone? We got about uh, eight or ten minutes here, so I'm going to open it up to uh, some questions or comments you have about what we've talked about so far in our text. If you don't have any, I have some. Uh, anything you've noticed in these two chapters you want to highlight, or any questions you have about what we've talked about? Okay, let me let me start with this one. Uh, does, does anybody know how to pronounce every word, all of those names in chapter 16? Can you do it? Anybody willing to do it? All right. Um, then why on earth in our Bible do we need a chapter full of names that we don't know? Why do we need chapter 16? We can end at 15. Why inside of our Bible do we need a whole chapter of names of people in New Paul? Anybody got a thought? Yeah, everybody has a special need. Everybody is loved. Everybody has a special purpose. Every person was valuable. Uh, there are people who have impacted your life that I don't know. But you have impacted my life. So Paul's saying, here's some people I want to thank. And, and they may be some common threads, too. Some of these people they knew or knew of. Anybody else have another thought as to why... Why on earth do we need a whole chapter full of names that we can't pronounce, of people that Paul knew? Yeah, Ken. He's coming. What you think? No need, Mike, for my short comment. There were people that obviously were known to the other people that he was writing this book to. Right. So they, they give some credence to Paul's words. They say, these people vouch for me, right? This is his list of references. Here's the people that I know that you know. Good. I also think that in doing this, Paul is showing us how every person that had come in contact with him had blessed him and there in turn blessed others. Uh, when I go back to southwest Missouri, I visit churches where I grew up. And well, they say grew up. I went to high school there. And uh, they get so excited when I visit. You know, they follow, they follow me on Facebook Several of those churches helped me through college. Um, there were six churches in southwest Missouri that sent monthly donations. 
Some of it was, you know, 50 bucks a month. I had one church that helped me for a few years at $400 a month. Boy, that helped. Um, so I had those congregations that knew me from when I was in high school and said, we want to support you to college. Well, I still visit those churches and I still talk to those brethren because they, those churches got me to where I am today. And they see my work in Somerdale, Alabama as an extension of where they are in Southwest Missouri because they helped me. I in turn am helping you. You're helping me. I'm helping others. It is a, it is a, 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 a large scope of the world thing. We, we encourage people who encourage people who encourage people. And so we're in this together. I think that's another reason why he probably, he had to put all of their names in there. He's, These are people I appreciate and maybe they did too. Um, so he talks about unity. What about the last part? When he talks about people who are divisive, he starts talking about people who are uh, discouraging, uh, divisive people. He says those are people that need to be avoided. He says there's a difference between what is good and what is evil. I think it's when he says in verse 18, you know, they're only thinking about their own belly. I think he's saying they're thinking about things from a selfish perspective. It's not just that they were after food. But inside of the kingdom of God, uh, we have to notice what is good for unity and what is good for division. What God is for and what he's not for. There's a thought Jesus expresses when he says a house divided against itself will not stand. And so in other places, okay, Paul, in talking about division, he'll mention people by name. He'll talk about people that have caused problems. He'll even sometimes talk about the problems that they've caused. And so he says this, but he says it in three verses, but he doesn't give any names. He doesn't even identify what the problems are. In 16 chapters, you know, he's got a few. You know, he talks about Judea and Syntyche in Philippians. It's four chapters. A little, little thing mentions them right there at the end in chapter four. 16 chapters, he's not really identified any main characters by name. They say, well, then what's the point? He's, he's saying this in a very small section at the end of the chapter because he wants these brethren to focus on things that are good. He wants these brethren to focus on things that are going to move them forward. And, and dwelling on division or dwelling on problems that they've overcome or that they've gone through is not good for the congregation's spiritual health. And so he's talking about people that he doesn't go through the list of bad people. He goes through the list of good people. He talks about all the people that are there. And sometimes when things happen and people get discouraged or they are divisive, we have a tendency to get worked up and think about it all the time. And what we forget is that there are many, many more people that are there to bring unity and love to the church family. And we've got to think about those kinds of positive things. That doesn't mean we ignore bad stuff. We, we make it known. We, we address it. We deal with it. But Paul's saying to this church in Rome, what they needed to do was look to the future. That they needed to look for the horizon. And sometimes we get caught up in the past. And we talk about things that happened way back when. And he's, that's not for edification. What edifies the church is saying, we're here now, now let's move forward from this point. Not dwell too much in, in where we've been, but instead dwell on where we're going. That makes sense? Any other thoughts from chapter 15 or chapter 16? I haven't heard of bells. Anybody heard a bell? Is there a... Do what? Ring? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.